Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. It is the home stretch in the B.C. election. General voting day is this Saturday. Time to welcome my first guest now, NDP leader John Horgan, seeking re-election this Saturday. He hopes to remain the 36th Premier of British Columbia. John Horgan, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Let's start with tax increases here. After the last election, your government raised or introduced more than 20 new taxes, many of them without warning. A prime example, the employer's health tax. You blindsided business with that tax. No mention of it in the last campaign. Just so there are no more surprises this time, will you commit right here, right now, if you're re-elected, you will not impose any new taxes on British Columbians and you will not raise any existing taxes? No new taxes, yes or no? Uh, we have no um, no intention of raising taxes, Mike. We will meet our commitment on carbon pricing. Uh, we have a t- uh, 2022 deadline to get to $50 a ton. A ton. We've delayed that uh, because of the pandemic, but we will have to increase uh, the carbon tax uh, between now and 2022. Okay, I, I want to get some more detail on the carbon tax in a moment, but just to be clear... I'm not really interested in what your intentions are right now. I'm asking you what you will actually actually do if you win on Saturday, because Gordon Campbell said the same thing about the HST. I wasn't planning it; he did it anyway. Can, yeah, can you can that. you guarantee? Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure you can. We all do. Can you guarantee yeah. voters right now you will not you will not raise their taxes if you win on Saturday or impose any new taxes? Our plan does not include any new taxes. It's going to be funded based on our growing economy as we come out of the pandemic. Okay, and you won't change the plan, right? Well, we're in a global pandemic, Mike, and I think your listeners understand that. We have no intention of raising new taxes. Right, but you're not ruling it out. You're not, I'm asking if you'd change the plan. Like, what's, what's the assurance you can give to voters right now on taxes? You might, you might raise taxes? Mike, you've asked me the question. I've given yeah. the answer. And I've also yeah. said, for context... We're in a global pandemic, and uh, I think all of your listeners understand that. Uh, we're going to focus on lifting up people. We're going to invest in health care. We're going to invest in seniors' care. That's our plan. Okay, let's talk about that carbon tax now. Currently, $0.09 cents a litre on a litre of gas. Your government froze that carbon tax at that rate because of the pandemic. People in this province are out of work. They're suffering. Can you commit right now you will not increase that carbon tax? No, we're going to get to uh, $50 a tonne. We're cur- dollars a ton. Uh, there's a need to do that, Mike. The federal government has uh, directed all provinces to either get to $50 a ton or they'll do it for them. Uh, BC has led the way on uh, climate action, as you know. Uh, we have uh, $10 to make up. That would be uh, two increments, uh, likely next uh, April and then again the April after that. But, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge is this is a national plan, part of our commitment to making sure we're working together. Uh, I think okay. British Columbians understand that. But we, so, want, we, we delayed it because we didn't feel that we could take any more taxes at this time. So British Columbians can anticipate an increased carbon tax in April? As all Canadians will, yes, that's right. Oh, okay, will you raise income taxes? It's not, our, it's not our intention to raise income taxes, no. 
Okay, it's not your intention, but you're, I, I just stress again, you're, you're not ruling yeah. it out completely, right? I think British Columbians understand, Mike, uh, we, we have no plans in our, in our campaign platform to raise taxes. Okay, will you, will you raise tobacco taxes, alcohol taxes, or cannabis taxes? There was uh, a, a sugary drink tax. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure of the status of that. Uh, it was uh, supported by people across British Columbia. I do not believe uh, we proceeded with that. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm not certain of where that's at. It would be a modest increase in a, in a bottle uh-huh. of pop uh, to encourage people to go to more healthy options. All right, speaking to NDP leader John Horgan, let's talk about another potential hit to the wallets here of British Columbians, and that's mobility pricing. Now, you were asked about this in the recent radio debate on CKNW. You denied any mobility pricing was in the works to pay for transit and transportation. Let's just make this crystal clear here, because mobility pricing is still up on the TransLink website. I just looked at it this morning. Can you guarantee drivers that they will not be hit with mobility pricing fees? is a TransLink initiative. It's not something that we've been promoting. Uh, we're going to, uh, following the election, we'll sit down with the mayor's council to talk about a whole range of issues. I don't anticipate that mobility pricing or road pricing is going to be part of that discussion. I think most communities right now recognize that we are in an extraordinary time and we need to focus on keeping people well, keeping them safe. We're already committed to another $9 billion in investments yeah in transit and that is where i think most of the municipalities are looking for new revenue so they can meet their requirement we're doubling down on on skytrain uh, all the way to langley so we're going to pick up those costs we're going to work with the federal government on that to give some relief to municipalities i'm looking at the translink website right now and it says regional congestion fees and distance paced driving charges throughout the metro vancouver region both concepts show promising results if TransLink moves to inflict these fees on Metro drivers, will you overrule them to ensure that drivers don't get hit with these fees? Again, I think that that discussion is yet to come. I have no intention of implementing road pricing uh, as a provincial mandate. I want to make sure that I'm working collaboratively with the mayor's council. Uh, the previous government didn't do that. That's what put us in the bind at the Massey Crossing. Rather than having a yeah. plan that everyone bought into, uh, they brought in their own plan, and now we're we're ten years behind because of that. Right, so but I the buck. I want to work with people, Mike, to get the best outcomes for British Columbians. I understand the buck stops with you, though. Trans, you have to have the authority to overrule TransLink if you wanted to. Can you assure drivers they won't be hit with these fees? I want to hear what TransLink has to say, and then uh, we'll go from there. My, okay. I just said to you, it is not a provincial mandate. It's not our intention to impose. Uh, road pricing. Okay. I, I don't want to override people who are working on something until I got a chance to sit down and talk to them. All right. Let's talk about labor laws in the province. The, the NDP is constitutionally aligned with the trade union movement. The unions are backing you big time in this election. Can you guarantee that you will not eliminate the secret ballot vote for workers to join a union? That's the law in our province now. You want to form a union in this province, workers must vote in a secret ballot. So there's no intimidation on either side from union or management. You vote in secret. Will that remain the law in B.C.? We did a review of the Labor Code. It came back with recommendations about card check. Uh, We didn't proceed with those recommendations because the Green Party caucus wouldn't support us. I'll take a look at that when we get back. Uh, Should we be successful on the 24th? But quite frankly, Mike, we're focused right now on the pandemic. That's what British Columbians are, are seized with every day in their homes, in their workplaces. And that's my 
number one priority. Okay, business and employers in this province do not want that secret ballot to be eliminated. Judging from what I just heard from you, you're saying it might be eliminated under a new under a new NDP government, correct? I'm saying that our priority is focusing on the needs of British Columbians right now. Uh, no, I'm talking all. about the secret no, ballot. Let me let me finish my thought, Mike. Yeah, sure. Uh, People across British Columbia have good ideas on a whole range of things. You've talked about road pricing. You've talked about the labor code. You've talked about a whole bunch of other issues. What people are telling me right now is we want to be safe and secure and well in our communities. That's their priority. That's my priority as well. That means investing in things that matter to them, not bringing up ideas that sound over the long term to be beneficial to somebody else. They want to know that they can. their aging parents are going to be cared for. They want to make sure they find spaces for their kids, and they want to make sure that the health care system is there for them. Let, let me Those try. are the things that we've been talking about. Those are the things we're going to work on in the next mandate, should we be rewarded with one on Saturday. Let, let me try one more time to get a specific answer from you on this. The secret ballot is in place right now to prevent workers from being intimidated to either join a union or not join a union. So they're not intimidated by management or by the union. That's the purpose of a secret ballot, fundamental to our our system and our democracy here. So I, I, I believe. Why I, can't you make a clear statement on that? Are, I believe if workers in a workplace want to join a union, that should be done without intimidation, free right. from all of that. Workers have in other jurisdictions and in BC in the past. The federal government has card check. Other jurisdictions have card check. It has proven to be successful in protecting workers and making sure that industries and businesses understand the rules of engagement. I believe that's appropriate. But when we did the uh, review of the Labor Code, the, yeah. the B.C. Green Party wouldn't support us. We put that to one side. We're focusing on the issues of right now. And I think that's what British Columbians want us to do. I'm not going to deviate from that until we come out of this pandemic. Okay, I, I think that secret ballot is, is, is gone if, if you win, quite frankly. Let me ask you about the, the insulting comments that your candidate Nathan Cullen made about an, an Indigenous leader in northern British Columbia. I know you've said that. Uh, wh- why the double standard here? You guys have been pitiless and have shown no mercy at all. Anytime the Liberals make a mistake, you demand resignations. How come you don't demand this guy's resignation? I didn't re- demand J- uh, Jane Thornthwaite's resignation. I expressed disappointment in her comments. I didn't demand anyone resign from anything. I talked to Nathan Cullen. Your candidates Cullen. have. I, I, well, the, uh, I can speak for myself, Mike. I spoke to Nathan Cullen. I expressed my disappointment in his comments. He's apologized. He's remorseful. He's represented the area for 15 years. Uh, The people in the community will decide uh, whether they want to go with Nathan again or with someone else, and they'll do that on Saturday. Okay. Your party has this equity mandate that says that if if an MLA retires, the next candidate is required required to be a woman or someone from an equity-seeking group. You had a perfectly good candidate up there seeking the nomination in that riding, Anita McPhee, a woman, an Indigenous leader. She was blocked from running. Do you apologize to her? Not at all. Uh, look, there's a couple of other things you need to know about, Mike, and I, this has been conveniently left out of the coverage of this issue. When Doug Donaldson decided he wasn't going to seek re-election, it was just a few weeks before the election call actually came. And uh, the, the Riding Association volunteers in Stikeen, the largest constituency by geography with a very small population, asked 15 people in the region that would have complied with the equity mandate if they wanted to run. None of them said they did, so we asked Nathan Cullen. After that happened, Anita McPhee, who lives in Vancouver and has lived in Vancouver for a decade and is not a member of the NDP, said that she might want to run. 
she was disqualified because she wasn't a member, Mike. It had nothing to do with her gender. It had nothing to do with her ethnicity. It had everything to do with she wasn't eligible. This Simple is, a, di- this is a, a different story now from what the party has said. Your party president, Craig Keating, put out a statement saying that there were problems with her application to run, yeah, but the problems, yeah, the problems, hang on, the problems were resolved. They were resolved in his words, but then he said there was no time to process the application, which is ridiculous. That's on, that was on Monday, September 21st. October, October 2nd was the deadline for candidates to be nominated. You had, you had more than two weeks to process her nomination. You didn't do it. And, and the, the rules of engagement, Mike, are that you need to be a member of the NDP in good standing for 90 days. That was, that was longstanding in the NDP, has been there forever. Anita lives in Vancouver not in Stikine. Okay. Anita was not a member of the NDP. She wasn't eligible to be a candidate. Almost out of time. Last and question. Should, but yes. well, let, me, let me add on. Sure. Nicole Hallbauer is a Gitsan woman running in, in Skeena. Anne-Marie Sam is an Akosley woman running right beside, on the other side in uh, Nechaco Lakes. I am unapologetic about our equity mandate. It has produced the most diverse uh, slate of candidates in the history of B.C. Last, last question for you. In the last campaign, you promised to scrap the foundation skills assessment test in our public school system, which, which measures basic functions in reading and writing in our kids. Uh, would you scrap that foundation skills assessment test? I know that there are many educators that don't support the test. There are many parents who don't support the test. What we're focused on, again, Mike, right now, is uh, making sure that the safe restart of schools are there for the people who are working in the classrooms, the kids that are in those classrooms. During a global pandemic, our priorities are, first and foremost, the safety yeah. and well-being of our No, I'm, ask, I'm asking if you would scrap that FSA test. That's the we, question. We have no intention at this time to scrap the FSA test, but I know it's a controversial issue if it comes back in the next number of years, not next number of weeks or months, we'll take a look at it. We, I, 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 I'm disappointed that you want to carve in stone. Uh, the act- I appreciate on the tax question, those are legitimate and appropriate. Other policy issues that come up, come up because there's a demand from the community to re- review them. And I think that's appropriate. I absolutely okay. uh, get it. We're not raising taxes. Good questions. But uh, on policy issues that are controversial, it depends on the moment, and the moment is not now. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, Mike, take it easy, man. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the global fight against the COVID-19 pandemic now. Different countries took different approaches to the virus all around the world, including Sweden. Unlike many other European countries, Sweden did not impose strict lockdowns in their country, certainly not as strict as many other countries in Europe. Now, what has been the result? Every time we talk about this issue, I often get phone calls, tweets, and emails from people saying Sweden did a great job. Maybe we should not have locked down our economy here in Canada and elsewhere around the world. Do what Sweden did. Here's a typical call we often get in the open line in this one. Have a listen. We only have to look to the example of Sweden, which is not being commonly reported, where they had no masking, they had no lockdowns, they had no interference at all in in their public lives, and they have no higher rates of infection and or death rates than Canada does or any state or country. Uh, not so sure about that. All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Dr. Lena Einhorn. She is a virologist in Sweden, and we reached her in Sweden today. Dr. Einhorn, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. How did Sweden approach this? Could you just refresh our memories when the, when the virus hit, when the pandemic hit in the spring? What was Sweden's approach? Could you describe what they did? 
Well, there were a few phases. The first phase was basically nothing is going to happen to us. Uh, it was they were it was compared to SARS. They were convinced it only spread when you had symptoms, and there was really no preparation made with regard to testing or protective gear. But then at the end of February, when it hit Italy uh, and people were coming back to Sweden from Italy, and it was very obvious uh, that there would be a pandemic, um, Sweden made a, a fateful decision. Unlike our neighbors in the Scandinavian and Nordic countries, we had no lockdown. But not only that, it was basically a very laissez-faire approach. And uh, within a few weeks, Sweden had the highest death numbers per capita in the world. Wow, um, okay. Okay, what about yeah. face masks? We heard we heard in the caller there in that segment saying that Sweden never brought any kind of mandatory face mask rules. Is that correct? That is correct. It's not even a recommendation in Sweden. These are The following countries are the only countries in the world which do not have face mask recommendations anywhere, basically, and that's Sweden, Sweden, uh, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, Eritrea, Greenland, and some Pacific Islands. Okay, what has been the result? You mentioned the death rate in Sweden. Could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, so, so our neighbors uh, in the other Scandinavian countries, they had a lockdown uh, at the beginning of March. So Sweden now has 10 times the per capita death of uh, Norway and, uh, and uh, Finland, and five times the amount of Denmark. So we, we've had a devastating result compared to them. We've had uh, close to 6,000 deaths in a population of 10 million. Wow, okay. Was the, the idea here in Sweden to achieve what's known as herd immunity, that if people do gradually contract the virus, they will build up those antivirus antibodies in their body, and if enough people get the virus over time, we will, they will achieve a, a, an immunity to COVID-19? Was that sort of the, the plan? Well, there are, they spoke through two sides of their mouths once the, the epidemic hit and once they realized there would be an epidemic in Sweden. On the one hand, uh, they claimed that they absolutely were not striving for herd immunity. On the other hand, they claimed that it would be a bonus and that we would have a much better situation in the fall because we had higher immunity. So they kept saying both those things until the summer. And then in the beginning of the summer, the testing was so broad, the antibody testing I'm talking about, it became obvious that we are nowhere near herd immunity. Sweden had overall 6 to 7% immunity, or rather antibody positivity, and Stockholm, the capital, had 11 to 12%. So, you know, 6,000 deaths and 6 to 7% immunity, you can imagine, in order to get herd immunity, how many people would have to die. Die, right. Okay. Speaking to Dr. Lena Einhorn, she is a virologist. We're speaking to her live from Sweden. Um, what has been the reaction of the public, Swedish citizens, to, to the situation in Sweden? Like, I, I've, I've read a lot about Anders Tegnell, who is Sweden's chief epidemiologist, and I don't know, from, from my perspective, it seems like he's been pretty popular, like people really, really love him. Like a, a lot of public health officials have become sort of beloved figures in countries around the world, in, including Dr. Tegnell. Is, is that true? Like, do people 
despite the the troubles that have been going on in Sweden, do people still support him? Uh, in the beginning, uh, the support was like eighty percent. I would say at yeah. this point, it's it's probably fifty to sixty percent. I mean, uh, he's very good at presenting with a very calm voice uh the 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 situation even when sweden was having the highest death numbers in the world he was presenting it with a very calm voice and right. he has the support of the government so so it it's been sort of a, a uniform stance and 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 also you have to remember that 90% of the people who died were elderly so for most people they they didn't see it and so you know being able to live their lives not exactly as before but not you know, like our Scandinavian neighbors, was very attractive to a lot of people. On top of which, you always have the desire to, to trust when you have a, yeah. a national crisis. I mean, I think that's all over the world. People want to trust their health authorities. Okay. What about the economic implications of lockdowns and shutting down the economy? I guess this is one of, one of the fears that we've heard, that maybe the cure can be worse than the disease, and that... Uh, if you avoid the lockdown, you'd be able to keep your economy strong and keep your economy going. Like, how is the economy doing in Sweden? Well, uh, the latest numbers I heard, I'm not an economist, so I have to go by the published numbers. Uh, Sweden yeah. did not do better than its Scandinavian neighbors. Rather, it did a little worse. Um, wow. It did better than the average of the European Union countries, but it, it should be more compared to our neighbors. And so, uh, you know, they didn't fare any better okay are things changing in sweden is is the government considering well okay we've had a high death rate here is there any indication that they may go to any kind of restrictions or or mask recommendations for example what, what's happening now well in the summer you know they just the numbers went down steeply because we have it's a very sparsely populated country and we have very long vacations so, you know, in July, they started going down. So, so Sweden was sort of given this gift. Uh, so when the fall started, we had really good numbers, uh, you know, for the actual numbers in real, real time. Now it's going up, and it's going up uh, more steeply than uh, in our neighboring countries. They will still not uh, adopt any mas uh, mask use. You have to realize in Stockholm, in Sweden rather, the doctors and nurses do not wear masks. So you go to the hospital what? and people do not wear masks. Yes, it's wow. like a taboo against masks. Now, nobody knows what will happen when the numbers go up even more steeply, but so far there's no indication that, that they will favor masks. Anders Tegnell, whom you mentioned, still maintains that uh, there's no support for masks in the scientific literature, which is absolutely bs frankly because the support by now is very strong i mean in the spring it was weaker but by now there have been so many studies that clearly show that if everybody wears a mask you can cut right. this down dramatically dr einhorn it's been great to have you on i hope better days are ahead for sweden and for all of us thank you for being on the show today thank you you broke my heart and left me there to die you told me 3.14 wasn't pie. You left me, took my money, my dog too. Lawyer told me not to talk to you. You called the law, right. now I'm here in jail. My lawyer told me to not to talk to you.
That's uh, Paul Doroshenko. Who knew that he had his secret life as a country singer? All right, we welcome him back to the show. Paul Doroshenko, he's a criminal lawyer with Acumen Law Group, specializing in driving law. Paul, it's nice to have you on again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Nice to speak with you. Okay, let's talk about traffic tickets right now, your specialty. Do you think most people, when they get a ticket, they just knuckle under, they pay the ticket, they don't even think about fighting it? Like, if you do fight a traffic ticket, is there a good chance you can beat the rap? Well, the thing is, the, the, they ha- the Crown has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Yeah. So the point is that most people look at it and they think to themselves, well, you know, I've got the ticket. I have to notify the government if I want to dispute it. Normally, if you're charged with something or you're, you're accused of something, you have to go to court and it's up to the Crown, but it's sort of there's an assumption of guilt. People shouldn't assume that because they have a right to a trial. Right. You know, all so, you have to do is file the thing in dispute, and then it's up to the government to prove their case. Does that go for all, all traffic tickets, pretty much? Yep. Every traffic ticket. Every traffic ticket, you're entitled to the presumption of innocence, right. and you know the onus is on the, on the government, on the Crown, to prove the case. Okay, so if you think that you've, this is a bad rap, you don't deserve the ticket, you would advise people to fight back. Well, even if you think that maybe they can't prove it, even if you think that there's an essential mm-hmm. element that they can't prove about the case, if you think that there's something wrong with it, then file it in dispute. Can you give me an example? Like, What's the most common sort of situation that, that you've seen in your practice over the years of a, of a ticket that, that's sort of a classic one to, to fight and win? Well, think of, okay. I mean, think of cell phone tickets. For Mm. years, cell phone tickets, police officers were giving people tickets if their phone was sitting loose in the car somewhere. You know, not being used, but just sitting loose, sitting on the seat. And people got tickets, and people paid those tickets, and they're on their driving records, and that was wrong. You know, and the court eventually looked at it and said, no, it's, I mean, it's got to be use. Uh, And if the, if you're, you know, if you're holding it in your hand, then that's one thing. But if it's sitting loose in your vehicle, that's another. And there's all of these people in British Columbia, thousands of people who were given cell phone tickets in those circumstances where the people just paid the ticket, uh, thinking there wouldn't be significant consequences. And now, of course, we've got, you know, your car insurance is affected by it. Yeah, I mean, what is the penalty for distracted driving? Well, I mean... The government likes to call it distracted driving, okay? Yeah. <laughs> that way they can lump it together in a bunch of statistics and make it look like it's, uh, cell phones are, are causing carnage on the road. Uh, it's $368 and four demerits uh, if you get a cell phone ticket and you're convicted of it. And there's also driver risk premium. So you're paying on top of that when you, uh, you know, at your birthday, they send you a bill. And if you don't pay it, it's like 21% interest rate. Um, so that's just, and if you get a second one within uh, two years, you're looking at a driving prohibition of four months. So it's pretty significant consequences for a cell phone ticket. And the really upsetting thing I think for most people is they get that cell phone ticket when they, you know, they've got their phone in their cup holder. They hear it make a tone. Uh, they're at a set of lights. They're, they're stopped at the lights. They pick up their phone for a second and there's an uh, officer knocking on the window. Oh, yeah. And that's how most people end up getting them. It's not that they're driving down the road, uh, you know, doing, uh, doing TikTok videos or something like that. Oh, yeah, be careful at those stoplights. Yeah, they're lurking around there. That's where, that's where they'll get you. Paul Doroshenko is my guest. He's a criminal lawyer with Acumen Law. He specializes in driving law. Okay, Paul, I follow you on Twitter. Um, your law partner there, Kyla Lee, I, f- I follow her as well. And I, I've been following what you guys have been saying around earbuds. So if you if you have earbuds in while you're behind the wheel, which which is something I, 
I can't imagine doing myself. I think that would be so distracting to me. I would never do something like that, but I guess some people do. So what is the deal with that? If you're driving with earbuds in behind the wheel, is that illegal? My wife likes to drive with an earbud in uh, and listen to podcasts. And you can drive with one earbud in unless you're on a motorcycle, at which point you can have an earbud in each ear. So there's a recent decision, uh, Greslak from the uh, B.C. Supreme Court, where this fellow had uh, two earbuds in, and they were plugged into a phone that was non-functional. But he had both earbuds in, his phone was dead. And uh, he wasn't entitled to rely on that exemption because he had both earbuds in. If he had one earbud in, he would have been acquitted. He had two earbuds in, so he was convicted. But wow. had he been on a motorcycle, he would have been okay, because there's an exemption on a motorcycle you can have two earbuds in. What is the deal with that? How come you're allowed to have two earbuds in while you're driving a, riding a motorcycle? You know, it, it's funny, because, of course, we have, the, uh, we have the definitions in the Motor Vehicle Act, and then at the last section of the Motor Vehicle Act, it says, and the government can make other definitions in the regulations. So the regulations, of course, don't have to go before the legislative assembly, and the government can write anything into the regulations, and, and you know, it's signed off on it. Um, so this is in the regulations that says you can have one earbud in, provided that your phone is installed. So a cup holder is sufficient for it to be installed. Okay, so you can have one earbud in in a four-wheel, in a, in a vehicle, in a car. Yeah. One earbud in. If you got, what is the penalty for two earbuds if you get caught? Well, you're $368 for demerits. Yeah. Yeah. Law in British Columbia with my guest, lawyer Paul Doroshenko. Have you ever received a traffic ticket you thought was unfair? Want some advice on how to fight it? Call me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Ben on the open line in Burnaby. Hiya, Ben. I'm doing well. How are you, Mike? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Uh, so I was traveling down Boundary, heading across uh, Lowheed Highway, and I didn't run a red light or anything. I just went through the intersection. I drive an F-150. I got a ticket, and it was sent to me, and what they did was they measured the length of my vehicle and said that I went through the intersection at a certain estimated speed, and then that was speeding, and so they sent me a speeding ticket in the mail. Um, so I'm wondering, I've never even heard of this before. I don't have any experience with it. Um, I don't recall. It was early in the morning. It was like 6.30 in the morning on the way to the airport. Is that something I can okay. challenge, or how does that work? Okay, Paul, is that like a speed camera, intersection speed camera? Is that what that is? It's actually radar. Uh, they said yeah. when they were putting those cameras in that they weren't going to be radar, and then, of course, we got the uh, information about them, and we found out it was, in fact, radar. Um, so it was a radar, a radar gun that's a fixed-mounted one. Uh, that right. got you, and um, the uh, it's a, uh, a ticket that is a photo ticket, so they can't say who the right. driver is, so it doesn't show up on your driving record. There is a reason to dispute it if you're a commercial driver because you get commercial points, but on your personal driving record, your driver's abstract, it doesn't show up there because they don't know who was driving. And so there's hardly a motivation to dispute those ones because you're going to spend a day going down to court uh, to run the thing, and you can succeed. I mean, people have succeeded on them. There's been some uh, t- some test trials uh, where the uh, judicial justices have not been uh, satisfied with the evidence. Uh, but uh, is it worth doing it? Most of the time, it's probably not. Okay, Reg in New West. Hi, Reg. Hey, Paul and Mike. Um, before the point system came in, I was on hold calling John McComb to talk about something, 
and uh, the RCMP officer by the tunnels, he pulled me over and I said, in about uh, 10 seconds, I'm going to be talking to John McComb on NW. 300,000 people are going to be hearing our conversation. As it turned <laughs> out, we had a, a kind of a nice chat. And I said, I didn't know that my buds are going to, I did. I just didn't know. And the RCMP said, I think a lot of people don't know. And when I went to what, court, Wait a minute, wait a minute. What did he pull you over for? Um, I had uh, two earbuds in, earbuds in my ears. Right. I, I was on. I was on hold. I was calling NW to talk to yeah. John McComb. And, and uh, okay, did he give you a ticket? He gave me a ticket. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get. I didn't get the points then. But then he said, you know, we got a lot of great, uh, positive publicity from this because you were on the radio, and he <laughs> uh, spoke to the judge when I went in there and uh, explained everything. And the judge says, okay, thirty bucks. Thirty bucks. <laughs> what? So you just you fought the ticket and won. I bought the ticket and paid only thirty dollars. I didn't get any points. Really? Okay. okay. Thank, thanks for thanks for calling in, Paul. When the uh, when this offense was first made an offense, there was no points to it. Um, but of course, then it went to uh, three demerit points, and now it's four demerit points. So it automatically triggers uh, driver risk premium and everything. Now uh, you know they've really come down hard. Can the uh, can the judge reduce the fine though, like that? Uh, it's fixed fines now, so it's yeah. not going to happen now. But back then, when he got his. Uh, you could do that. Those really? days are over. Okay, Robert in Surrey on the open line. Hi. Hello there. Hi. I'm going to talk kind of fast because my story's involved. I was pulled over several years ago on King George coming home from work. There was a van in front of me. I didn't know it was an off-duty cop on holidays. He was in his own personal van, but he would go into a left turn lane and then come right back out in front of me with a big smile on his face, almost deliberately trying to get me to rear-end him. He did that at three intersections. Finally, he pulled me over, screaming out the window that he was a cop and showing me his badge. He pulled me over, took all my information. I made a big complaint, about three pages, took it to the RCMP. For quite a while, nothing happened. Eighty days later, he was at my door, gave me a ticket, because he said he forgot to give me a ticket when he came back on duty after holidays. I went to Surrey Court. They said I was automatically found guilty because you have only 30 days to dispute the ticket. What was the ticket for? What did he cite you for? Um, Undue care and attention, because I was slamming my brakes on so I wouldn't rear-end him at every intersection when he came back into the straight through okay, lane from so the bo- left turn. Bottom line it for me, what happened at the end? Did you pay the fine? I had to pay the fine to renew my license, and I okay. just had to pay $130, got points on my license, and so I took it to Supreme Court, and Internal Affairs told me the cop didn't know how to fill out a ticket because he's not a traffic cop. He didn't fill out the ticket properly. He didn't fill out my copy properly, but he did for Victoria and the RCMP. So two years later, I got my money back and my points wow. off my license. Wow, Paul, what do you think of that? Yeah, you know, driving without due care and attention is actually a fairly hard one for them to prove. The officer can get the evidence uh, when he's off-duty. That does happen fairly regularly. Police officers will see somebody commit an offense. They'll come back and serve the ticket later. Uh, most of the time, I mean, in a circumstance like that, uh, you know, the police officer serves him a ticket that's different from the ticket that he files in Victoria. Uh, that can be a problem. Uh, Robert's mistake there, obviously, was to not dispute it within the 30 days because he ended up yeah. with a deemed conviction. 
conviction. Ultimately, he got it unwound in a very unusual way. Uh, if you do have a deemed conviction, if you miss the 30 days, you can give us a call because there are steps that we can take. Uh, but you should know if you get a ticket, you got 30 days to file it in dispute. Okay, my guest is lawyer Paul Doroshenko. Let's keep taking your calls here. Bill in Surrey. Hiya, Bill. Hi, how you doing there, guys? Good. Yeah, great show, by the way. Hey, listen, uh, uh, Mr. Doroshenko, I, uh, I received an IRP five years ago, as you know, an IRP is an immediate roadside prohibition. Uh, I am currently fighting it. Um, it's been five years. The dispute has been going on and on and on. It's gone from institutional bias, constitutional bias, uh, the like of that. Um, okay. What do you think my chances are to win this case? Uh, okay. I, I, if IRP, thanks for the call. IRP, Paul, is immediate roadside prohibition. That's for impaired driving, correct? Yeah. So he's got a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition for either providing a sample that uh, was a fail on an approved screening device or refusing an approved screening device demand. Um, that law came into effect September 20th, 2010. It was struck down uh, June or in uh, November 2011, and then it was reinstituted in June of 2012. And then there was numerous constitutional challenges filed to it. The last one uh, went to uh, sought leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, and leave was denied at the beginning of the year. And there was another administrative uh, decision that came from the Supreme Court of Canada that might have had an effect on it. It looks like all of those are pretty much closed down now. So any that we have filed for appeal, we're going through and looking to see whether or not there's substantive arguments that could lead to it uh, being revoked based on the changes to the law. But most of the ones that are constitutional, uh, if it's just a pure constitutional argument, it's probably time to shut it down. Chris in Coquitlam. Hi, Chris. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Hi Paul. Uh, this summer during COVID, um, I was driving in my Mercedes with the top down, beautiful sunny day. Uh, I saw the cop come around the corner. He followed me for about seven to eight kilometers. Uh, I was very conscious, made sure there was no speeding, did a lane change, used my directional signals, everything was kosher. Uh, made a right-hand turn, um, and his lights went on. And I went, what the hell is going okay, on? Okay, we just I got a minute left. What, what, we just got a minute left, so what happened? Okay, uh, he, he basically said, yeah, give me your license. I gave him my license. It had expired. I'd already been to the uh, ICBC center. They were all shut down. So I explained to him. I'd, I'd been to the ICBC offices. Uh, they were shut down. Okay, so he so, cited you for an expired license. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, yeah. Paul, Paul Doroshenko, 30 seconds. Did you file it in dispute? If you filed it in dispute, uh, go to court, show the officer that you've uh, got your license and that it's valid. He might be willing to do something for you. Paul, uh, thank thank you for coming on. We could do the whole show with you for sure. Maybe we should do that one day. But thanks for thanks for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Mike. Uh, busy show so far today. My first guest this morning was uh, John Horgan, the leader of the NDP. I'm just getting a ton of emails, text messages, uh, tweets uh, about that interview this morning. If you wanted to have your say on the John Horgan interview this morning, I encourage you to phone the buzz line. Let me know what you think there. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Also, give me a follow on Twitter, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. You'll find lots more there. All right, let's talk about BC's Medicare system now and whether you should have the right to spend your own money on your own health care 
at a private medical clinic. That was the subject of a recent constitutional court challenge by my next guest, Dr. Brian Day, owner of the Canby Surgery Center. He argued patients languishing on surgery waiting lists should have the constitutional right to private health care. He lost that landmark case. He is appealing. He joins me now. Dr. Day, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Before we get into the details of the appeal, could you briefly sum up? This was such a, a marathon court case. took years and years through the legal system before you finally got a judgment here. Could you, could you sum up what your basic argument was? Well, the basic arguments were two. One, um, if the government promises to deliver health care and then in a timely manner and then fails to do so, um, are you, should you be forced to, to wait even though their own government data says that you're, you're being harmed? And, and the second um, point is the, the 15 years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada um, ruled that the laws in, some laws in Quebec that outlawed um, the, the citizens' right to, to extricate themselves from, from um, a public wait list were unconstitutional and should should BC residents have the same protection under the charter that the Supreme Court gave to Quebec residents and and as you know um, in that decision the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that patients in patients in Canada were suffering and dying on wait lists and there's evidence in our court case that it was un, un, unchallenged that that even in just one health region, Fraser Health, in one year, 308 people died on the wait list. This is, wow. uh, and this is likely doubled or tripled as a result of COVID. So um, this is this is um, basically a fight against authoritarian laws. And a government witness in the trial, a government witness, said, "Yes, Canada is the only country on earth." in which there are jurisdictions that outlaw private health insurance and private right. health care. Right, and the section of, of the Constitution that you're, you're relying on in your court case was Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees everyone to life, liberty, and security of the person, right? So, so basically we are arguing that with that constitutional right that we all enjoy and have, that you shouldn't be forced to remain sick, getting sicker on a waiting list if you could if you could spend your own money and your own health care. Does that basically sum it up? Yeah, the the, yeah. the paradox is, and this is this is kind of a stark illustration, is that if you don't live in, if you're a non-BC resident, you have no, there's no problem. So this is discrimination against BC residents. In the week following the trial. I was scheduled to do seven operations. I cancelled um, three of them because they were BC residents and, and uh, we were not allowed to do them. But the, the, the residents of Alberta and, and Saskatchewan that were scheduled, um, they were fine. They were allowed to wow. have, have their health care. So it discriminates against, it, it's a law that discriminates against our, our own citizens. Okay, let's talk about that appeal now. And after you've lost this this case, can you describe to me why uh, it, what you just what you just mentioned there that if you're a BC resident, you're not you're not allowed to receive service at your clinic now? Is that correct? If you're a BC resident, you're not allowed to unless you're um, an injured worker or unless you are um, a federal employee like a judge or a senator 
or unless you are a federal prisoner. Um, so they are all exempt. They, are, they all have. So what this law has done is given prisoners rights that are denied to people who are not in jail. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about your appeal. Is there a possibility here that the provincial government could uh, shut down your clinic and other private clinics? Well, that's what they've done with respect to BC residents um, who are on wait lists. And, you know, one of the things that is was in evidence at our trial <clears throat> is that at any one time, 40,000 patients in BC are waiting past the maximum time that the government itself has said will cause may, is, uh, may cause irreversible harm. The medically maximum acceptable time, 40,000 people in BC patients suffering are waiting past the time that the BC government has determined is the maximum they should wait. Okay, my guest is Dr. Brian Day, owner of the Canby Surgery Centre. Your lawyers were back in court on Monday at the BC Court of Appeal. And can you tell me what what you're seeking there, you're looking for an, an, an injunction against the government from shutting you down, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah. this is just an injunction to allow the status, the, the, this is an injunction to allow the same thing that's been happening for 25 years to carry on while the appeal is, is heard. The, the main appeal of the trial judge's decision is scheduled for next June. Um, so this is to allow the same practices that have been going on for the last 25 years to continue pending the decision of the appeal court because our, our, um, we have been advised that um, the decision contains many, many errors in law and many, many errors in, in interpretation of the evidence at the trial. Okay, if you do not if you do not get this injunction at the BC Court of Appeal, what does it mean for people who are like scheduled to receive surgery at your clinic and other private clinics? They would not receive oh, their surgery. No, that we've already cancelled all of those patients. So they, wow. they, those patients, like right now, there are even in the first two weeks, we cancelled many many patients who were waiting for with possible cancers who had had cancer and were waiting for reconstructive surgeries or were waiting for cataract surgeries and patients in the 60s, 70s, and late 80s. And, and these individuals, the, the latter group, are known, and this was also evidence in trial, um, to be at risk of suffering injuries like broken hips, which, they, they, which there's a mortality from. And these are patients who cannot get access in the public system. So... The government is denying, um, and, and I, I don't think I can emphasize too much that this is the only, the, a government witness at trial said we are the only jurisdiction on this planet. Canada is the only country in which there are jurisdictions that make have such laws that say that we can promise to deliver health care in a timely way and then not deliver it and at the same time, make it unlawful for you to do anything about that. I mean, okay. it's that's okay. the way it is.